Back in Acts. It's been a little while, hasn't it? Back in, yeah. Don't sing ACDC in the church, okay? Come on now. Acts chapter 17, we've been studying the book of Acts together for some time, and uh, we're coming off of a three-week break where we celebrated Palm Sunday, we celebrated Easter, and then we took some time last Sunday to learn about the fruits of salvation through the example of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. That was a nice time. I really enjoyed that. I love the biography stuff, and uh, when you study some of those saints of old, you know, it just kind of is a very humbling thing. So we took a break in our last section in Acts, we examined Paul's missionary work in the Macedonian city of Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, Paul reasoned from the scriptures uh, that Jesus is the Christ for three weeks and Jews, devout Greeks, and some of the leading women of the city had been saved. Other Jews, however, became jealous and gathered Thessalonica's rabble and formed a mob, and they went on the hunt for Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and these new believers. And they attacked the house of Jason and dragged him and other brothers before the city rulers, the magistrates. They made many allegations and caused the rulers in the crowd to become fearful. And the rulers decided to hold Jason and the brothers responsible for Paul's actions. You see, they couldn't find Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And so they took the next best thing before the leaders there and put it on them pretty good. And, and the leaders decided to, man, let's, let's hold Jason and the brothers accountable here. And they made them pay a bond. The stipulation was Jason and the brothers were to make the missionaries, Paul, Silas, Timothy, leave Thessalonica or they were to lose their money and face additional penalties. Paul chose to leave. Once he heard of it, he chose to leave because he did not want Jason and the brothers to become financially ruined or to create unnecessary trouble for the newly planted church by his continued presence and those rabid Jews. Paul was heartbroken over his early departure. He loved to, to stay in a new church and to begin to build a new church by proclaiming the gospel over and over and over and expounding the scriptures and these things. He wanted to make disciples and he was not given the opportunity uh, in this particular scenario and it absolutely broke his heart. And that is where we left off. We're going to be looking at Chapter 17, verses 10 to 15, Lord willing, this morning. And I think it would be befitting for us to pray one more time before we dive into the scriptures. God, open our hearts and minds this morning by the power of Jesus Christ. That you would speak truth to us, that we would hear truth, that we would be transformed by truth, that we would become doers of the truth. That's your work to do that, Lord, and we ask that you would do that this morning. Help us this morning to be attentive, to have willing hearts, to be moved by the Holy Spirit to action. And we call upon you, Jesus, in your own name, to do this today. Open our hearts and minds. Teach us. Change us. 
use us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 10. We're going to pick up in verse 10. Chapter 17, verse 10. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And so, you know, they had this bond deal. Jason told Paul they were basically forced to leave. And, and here's how they left. They left at night, in the middle of the night, they went to Berea. And when they got there, they arrived and went into the Jewish synagogue. So they've already left Thessalonica. Now there's some things you must know. Macedonia is shaped like a peninsula. On the east side, you, you have the Aegean Sea. On the west side, you have the Adriatic to the north, and you have the Ionian Sea to the south. Berea was situated 60 miles west of Thessalonica, about a quarter of the distance, you know, the halfway point, about a quarter of the distance across the entire peninsula, if you will. Berea was not an important Macedonian city like Thessalonica. Uh, it was basically a hole in the wall. It wasn't a port city, it wasn't a capital city, it wasn't on a major trade route. And uh, so think of a city like that now uh, in, in our community. Uh, Riverbank. Hey, I live there, don't say that. You know, it wasn't like Thessalonica that had a lot of people living in. It was a smaller city, it was rather insignificant. Nothing really going on there. Now take notice of how the text says the brothers, the brothers sent Paul and Silas to Berea by night. Text seems to indicate that it was actually the brothers' idea to send Paul, the missionaries, if you will, down to Berea. They came up with the idea. Now they were no doubt led by the Holy Spirit, but they made the suggestion. Paul may have thought, well, I've got to get out of here. Where might I go next? And then all of a sudden, those opinions started swarming in. I think you ought to go to Berea. And so it was the brothers' idea to, to send them down there. Now, they may have had some connections down in Berea, some of these brothers. Uh, they obviously knew there was a synagogue down there. They probably felt that if there was a synagogue there, that Paul could go into that synagogue, as he had done in Thessalonica. He could go down there and preach the gospel. Why would God not want to... Have the gospel proclaimed to Bereans. And so we don't know for sure why they made that suggestion. They may have had some connections there or something like that. There's no reasons given. Uh, Luke's not going to spend time trying to do that and neither am I. But it was their idea. Now, Berea was on the travel route. It wasn't a major uh, commerce route, but there was a travel route there that went through Berea from Thessalonica, it went through Berea and it went down to Athens in Achaia, or what we call Greece. Athens was one of the most important cities in the entire world then. It was the bedrock or epicenter of philosophy. Socrates and these greats had come out of there. And so this was a major, major place uh, to go to, and it was actually on the route to go down there. Now, if we look ahead, chapter 17, we see that Athens was the next city that Paul visited. 
So Berea then sort of becomes the in-between city or stop-off point between Thessalonica and Athens. Now take note of what Paul did in Berea when he arrived, according to the text. It says he went into the Jewish synagogue. Again and again and again we see this in the book of Acts. We see Paul living out his commission to the Jew first. He was to preach the gospel. Thus, when he entered a new city, if it had a synagogue, that's the first place he went to on the following Sabbath day. We see him living that out faithfully here. He goes right to the synagogue. What did he do while he was in the synagogue? Luke has written in other sections in Acts over and over and over as well that Paul preached Christ when he came to a new city, when he entered the synagogue, and that is precisely what he was doing here. That was his trademark. When he went to a new place, he'd go to the synagogue or the next best thing, and he would preach Christ. That is what he is doing here. Paul isn't easily dissuaded. There was an outroar, an uproar and an outrage against him in Thessalonica for preaching the gospel. And in every other city he'd gone to, he goes into a new city here. He has no idea what to expect. And he's faithful, despite the persecution. Serious persecution, too. Verse 11, now these Jews, this is an amazing, amazing verse. Now these Jews were more noble (laughs) than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. These Jews being the Jews in Berea. This is an absolutely fascinating verse. Luke draws a deliberate contrast here. He tells us that the Jews in Berea were different from the Jews in Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, the Jews responded to Paul's preaching, the gospel, if you will, with jealousy and persecution. In Berea, the Jews responded with eagerness, curiosity, and diligence. In Thessalonica, the Jews raided the house of Jason. In Berea, the Jews raided the scriptures to see if Paul was accurate. Because of this, Luke says that the Berean Jews were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica. A noble person is one who is exalted in morality, exalted in character, exalted in integrity. The dictionary says that a noble person is is one who is elevated. Elevated and high-minded, principled, magnanimous, honorable, esteemable, worthy, and meritorious. It's an interesting thing that Luke says about these people, that they were noble. People who exercise the highest level of nobility in certain given fields might even qualify to receive what we call the Nobel Peace Prize, or the Nobel Prize, if you will. You could get it in science and peace and these various things. Now, the standards for that award, of course, have come down dramatically over the years. You give it to just about anyone who smiles. Nobel Peace Smile Prize. I I think it's amazing that Luke ties the action of the Berean Jews to nobility. 
It's as if he's saying the Jews in Berea were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica because of how they responded to Paul's preaching and how they searched the scriptures. The Berean Jews did not get jealous and did not riot. They took it upon themselves to examine the scriptures to see if Paul was right or if Paul was wrong. Luke essentially says because of this, they were more noble than other Jews, those in Thessalonica. They were of higher character. They did not become jealous and angry. Their default mode was to search the scriptures to see if what that person had been saying is true or false. We might even say that the Berean Jews were much more open-minded to Paul's teaching and the scriptures because they were much less rooted in tradition. Now here's the big point that God wants to make to us via verse 11. Are you ready? I hope you're taking notes. The Berean Jews had a high view of scripture and that is what made them noble. In God's economy, things are different. He values things that fallen sinners either do not value or do not value rightly. One of the things that God values more than anything else is his own word, the Bible, his own testimony about himself, about his creation, about his creatures, about redemption. And those who value God's word as he does, he considers them to be noble. In fact, in God's eyes, there is no higher level of nobility that can be attained beyond having a high view of Scripture. A high view of Scripture brings the highest level of nobility in God's eyes. Men can excel in religion. They can excel in morality. They can excel in any given field, in, in character and in integrity, peace, science, and so on and so forth. But if they have a low view of Scripture or no view of Scripture, God considers them to be nothing. The world may cherish and reward people like this, but to God they are ignorant and lost. Now, the church in America is facing some serious challenges today. What are some of these challenges that, that the church in America is having to deal with? Abortion, homosexuality, gay marriage, consumerism, pragmatism. I mean, the list could have a thousand things on it. And the church's view of Scripture will determine whether it gets swept away into our culture, which is hell-bent on, on, on literally exalting and celebrating the depths of human depravity, or whether it stays true to its Lord and mission. If the church keeps a high view of Scripture, it will be blessed by God, it will endure, it will stay on mission, and it will suffer persecution. If it does not hold a high view of Scripture, it will become just like the culture. 
Now, I'd like to spend a little bit of time defining what it means to have a high view of Scripture because I think this is a very confused subject in the church. And let me give you an example of why. There's a gentleman, young gentleman by the name of Matthew Vines who just wrote a book called God and the Gay Christian. And in this book, he wrote the book for the purpose of settling the debate and argument to try to bring peace to the church as a whole. Because the church is facing this subject of gay marriage and homosexuality. And so he took it upon himself to write a book that's to, supposed to help to, to, to build a bridge in the gap and to help the church out. That way the church doesn't turn against it or do this or whatever and, and we can all have peace and we can all have harmony and everyone can have a place in God's church. We can all sing Kumbaya and move forward. What you don't understand about the book is that he's completely attempted to rewrite the Bible through it. Completely revised it. Takes six major passages on the issue of homosexuality. And by the way, this gentleman is a young homosexual. He takes the six passages, primary passages, and completely reinterprets them. And his claim is that the church has gotten this subject wrong for 2,000 years. And God is using him to make the church right. One of the things that he says at the front of the book is that he has a high view of Scripture. Obviously, there's confusion about what that means. I don't mean to sound mean or angry. or I just want to be gracious. God loves homosexuals. We love homosexuals. But we need to know what having a high view of Scripture means so that we can live that out and so that we can give a defense for the truth when necessary. I'm going to give you some foundational points, seven of them. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time in them. I'll do my best to get through them. I'm going to illustrate through seven simple foundational points what it means to have a high view of Scripture. And you guys are going to be like, man, we all know this. Apparently a lot of people don't. Number one, high view people believe that the Scriptures are inspired. This is just basic Christian doctrine. High view people believe that the scriptures are inspired. Inspired means from God. Inspired means that God spoke through people. Inspired means that they are divine in essence. That they come from a divine being. We see this in a number of scriptures. 2 Tim 3.16a All scripture is what? Breathed out by God. Inspired by God, given by God. 2 Peter 1, 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Prophecy, you might broaden that out and talk about in the entirety of Scripture. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. First thing you've got to do if you're going to have a high view is believe that the Word of God is inspired that its origin began with God, not with man. Secondly, high view people believe that the scriptures are objective. That the scripture is objective truth. Biblical truth is objective truth. It is true by itself. 
It is true whether or not we feel it's true. It is true whether or not it has been validated by someone's experience. It is true because God says it is true. It is wholly true, and it is true down to the smallest jot and tittle. Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. MacArthur wrote a nice piece on this here. He said, Having an objective view of Scripture is the very starting point and the necessary foundation for a truly Christian worldview. Give up the ground of objective biblical truth and whatever belief system you have left is not worthy to be labeled Christian, even if it retains vestiges of Christian symbolism and terminology. Many who would call themselves Christians today are precisely in that situation. They use the language and symbolism of Christianity, but their real source of authority is something besides Scripture. Some simply live by their feelings and shape their beliefs in accord with their own personal preferences. Others actually claim that God speaks directly to them through voices, strong impressions, or vague feelings, which they interpret as direct revelations from the Holy Spirit. Still others think that the Scriptures, or think of the Scriptures as an improvisational script, which they can modify or interpret any way they please. In any case, their lives and beliefs are ordered in, a, in accord with their own personal preferences, but historic Christianity is based on the objective revelation of Scripture. Our faith is grounded in the conviction that God has spoken, and His Word is objective truth, which He has given us, which He has given us, which is absolute and unshakable. And it is the truth by which all other truth claims are measured. You see, the Bible isn't subjective, uh, subjective truth where you can just make it mean whatever you want, as Matthew Vines has attempted to do and countless others. It is objective truth. It is what it is, what it is, what it is, regardless of how you feel about it or regardless of how nice people are or regardless of what this new passing fad might be. It is what it is what it is. It's done. Number three, high view people believe that the scriptures are inerrant. Inerrancy means that the Bible is without error. It means that it has no mistakes. It means that it has no fallacies. It means that it has no contradictions. Psalm 19:17 The law of the Lord is perfect. Law meaning scripture, law meaning 10 commandments, decalogue, law meaning the entirety of scripture. If it says in the psalm that it's perfect, that means it's without error. Right? Perfection means no mistake, no error, no contradiction. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Proverbs 35, 30, verse 5 actually. Every word of God is flawless, it says. Now you can bank on the fact that these themes and subjects are repeated over and over and over throughout the Bible. I'm pointing to just a couple of different examples. I like what Kevin DeYoung wrote about inerrancy. He said, when we reject inerrancy, we put ourselves in judgment over God's word. We claim the right to determine which part of God's revelation can be trusted and which cannot. 
when we deny the complete trustworthiness of the scriptures in its genuine claims, uh, we are, uh, if we do this, then we are forced to accept one of two conclusions. Either the scripture is not all from God or God and his word are not always dependable. To make either statement is to affirm what is sub-Christian. These conclusions do not express a proper submission to the Father, do not work for our joy in Christ, and do not bring honor to the Spirit who carried along the men to speak the prophetic word and author God's holy book. Defending the doctrine of inerrancy may seem like a fool's errand to some and a divisive practice to others, which it most certainly does in my own personal experience. And he says, but in truth, the doctrine strikes at the vitals of our faith to deny Disregard, edit, alter, reject, or rule out anything in God's word is to commit the sin of unbelief. High view people believe that the scriptures, that the Bible is without error, that it is perfect. Four, high view people believe that the scriptures are authoritative. Authoritative. God has authority over his creation. God has revealed himself to us in a special way. We call it special revelation in the scriptures, through the scriptures. The scriptures are then God's authoritative because he's the authority over creation, over his own word. The scriptures are then God's authoritative words to us. As our authority, the Bible always stands over us. We never stand over it. It is above us. The Bible judges us we do not judge it judging the bible is the same as judging the authority of god putting yourself over the scriptures is the same as putting yourself over god we know of one who attempted to do this back during the war in heaven and he was cast down we also know of someone else, the same person, same being, Satan, the devil, came into the garden and, and took it upon himself to exercise what the self-given authority and to make up his own words and to lie to Adam and Eve to deceive them who were given the authority over all creation, just don't eat from this. What did he do? He took it upon himself, made himself the highest authority, and gave what he called his own highest words, and they believed and they ate. The world fell into sin. You see what happens when you skirt or rise above the authority of God and his word. You see, the Bible is authoritative. Jesus was God incarnate, God in the flesh. Now listen to what he said about the authority of his own teachings, which were the very words of God. John 12, 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. This particular passage is one of the clearest examples of the authority of Scripture. The Scriptures, what Jesus spoke and what has been recorded, all 66 books, the Scriptures will stand as the authoritative judgment of God over all who reject Jesus Christ and the scriptures, the truth. This book actually is authoritative, but it becomes the authority over those who despise and reject Jesus Christ. This testimony here is used against them in authoritative sense at judgment. 
the scriptures are not only authoritative, they are our highest authority. High view people believe that. Five, high view people believe that the scriptures are fully sufficient. They believe the scriptures are fully sufficient. Our Bible has 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. That's it. No more, no less. People have added and subtracted books throughout the centuries. Despite those individuals, cults, or religions, the church has pretty much always held a 66-book view. I did the research. From the earliest moments as these books were written and released, not the Old Testament, of course, that was already in existence, the church has pretty much always held to this view. Even before the New Testament was fully canonized, the church held to this as early as the well, late part of the first century, late part of the second century, pardon. And we believe that the Bible is the precise, pardon me, precise word of God and that it contains all that God said and that it is complete. We believe that the Bible is God's perfect revelation. We believe that the Bible is fully sufficient to meet all of our spiritual needs, and some will take it even farther and say emotional needs and other needs as well. Because the Word of God is so perfectly whole. Obviously, it won't feed you a steak, but it'll feed you the very Word of God, which is what we're to truly live off of. In other words, the Bible is enough to grow us, to sanctify us, to make us mature in Christ, and to conform us to His image. 2 Tim 3.16, all scriptures breathed out by God. There's that again, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be made complete, brought to full maturation, and equipped for every good work. If you do not believe that the Bible is fully sufficient, and that you need more or something new, you do not have a high view of scripture. You might say, well, I read, I read all the time these extra biblical books that help me understand the scripture and grow in the faith. I spend a lot of my time reading those books. There's nothing wrong with that, but the point of those books is the scripture. Those books aren't sufficient in and of themselves. They point to scripture. They expound scripture. They're written because of scripture to explain scripture, to define scripture. Scripture is what is fully sufficient. All these other things point to that. If you take the Bible out of the mix, you just got books. You got Twilight series. Or 72 Shades of Grey or whatever that worthless book is. I don't think it's that many shades, but... There's nothing wrong with extra-biblical books, but they're extra-biblical because they're writing about Scripture. These books are simply just helping you understand what Scripture says and means. The sufficiency and power is in the Scripture. Remove the Scripture and you just have books. To grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, to be brought to spiritual maturity, you need nothing more than Scripture and the Holy Spirit who is the Spirit of truth. And we live in a day where people think that they need more than Scripture they think that they need more revelation from God. 
These people do not have a high view of Scripture. Anyone who says, I need more, I need something beyond this, Scripture alone isn't enough. I need these other things. I need these other holy books, these other religious books. I need that Lectio prayer, whatever these sorts of things are. People that say these things do not understand that the Scriptures are fully sufficient. They do not understand that. Thus, they do not have a high view Period. Six, high view people compare the teachings of others and their thoughts to Scripture. This is exactly what we see in our text. We're not supposed to blindly believe everything that pastors and people say. We're not supposed to just jump on whatever bandwagon drives by our house. We are to be Berean and to search the Scriptures to see if what we hear or what we think is right if it squares with Scripture. Scripture is the plumb line. Acts 17, 11, we just read it. They received the word with all eagerness. They liked what Paul said. That's not where they ended. Let's just believe what he said blindly. No, let's go and examine the Scriptures for ourselves. And they did it daily to see if what he was saying was true. That's how every one of us should be. And we are also to compare the Scriptures to our own understanding and thoughts. And when our understanding and thoughts do not align with Scripture, we are to cast those, that understanding and cast those thoughts down and to accept the truth. You're reading the Bible and you read, I, I don't know about this. I don't know if I believe this. this it's not kind of the way I see it. I, it. Who cares about how you see it? The only person that cares about how you see it is you. Have you set yourself up as some sort of God? The church has been debating incredibly important doctrines on election and all these things. And it's the way I feel. And I just don't think God would do this. And I just don't. Uh, shut up! The truth is the truth is the truth. We are to weigh our thoughts against Scripture. And when they fall short, which in my case is every 72 seconds... You submit yourself to Scripture. And in that, you're sanctified and you're transformed and you're conformed. If you keep holding your position over and over and over and holding your thoughts because of tradition or what people have told you and all that and it doesn't square with Scripture, you really just keep continuing to harden your heart. <clears throat> we are to compare what we hear and, and, and what we think to Scripture. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What is Paul talking about here? How are arguments and lofty opinions destroyed and how are our thoughts taken captive to obey Christ? Through the word of God. When we open and submit ourselves to the scriptures, we become equipped to destroy arguments against the truth and the thoughts that we have that do not align with the truth become exposed and then Hopefully, if you're humble, reformed. Amen? Every time you read your Bible, it ought to be a battle between the truth of God and your flesh that wants to lead you in another direction or the devil. So the battle is normal. The battle is hard. But we must yield to the Scripture. You ever prayed that? Do you have crazy thoughts? You think things that you shouldn't think about others. You think things about situations and what people are doing or 
about the opposite sex and you have these thoughts. You know what I've been praying to help bombard that? God, give me the ability today through the power of the Holy Spirit to, to capture every thought and to weigh it against Scripture. When these things don't line, throw them into the fire. And remind me before I take that little thought and turn it into verbiage. That would be so much more helpful. Because usually it's ha, ha, and then ha. Oof, could have done without that. That's going to leave a mark. It doesn't hurt here or here. It hurts right here. Capture every thought. Compare what you hear. Why else are people running crazy with ideas and things in the church today? I think one of the number one reasons why is because they don't compare what they hear to Scripture. Right? How else are some of these things happening in the church today? Craziness. Absolute craziness. If people just actually listened and, and experienced something at a church, maybe a church in town, and then just went and opened the scripture and read it, maybe they wouldn't be at that church anymore. But of course, you know, the ministers are working diligently to conform what this says to their practices. And so when that person looks in here and says, there was craziness in my church today. I don't know why they were doing this, that, and the other. And I look at the scripture. But then again, so-and-so said that's how it's supposed to be according to this verse. Seven, high view people obey and defend scripture. James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You can't hold a high view of scripture and live in habitual disobedience to scripture. That is hypocrisy. Many in the church today claim to have a high view of scripture while they walk in perpetual, habitual unholiness and immorality. When challenged, they say, I'm living under God's grace. Don't you try to bind me up with religion, you Pharisee. What they fail to understand is that Jesus never condemned the Pharisees for their obedience. Not once. What got them into trouble was their hypocrisy. They had a high view of Scripture according to their own preaching in these things. On the outside, no doubt, but not on the inside. Not in their hearts, not in their actions. You see, those who reject the law... And, and, and sin like unbelievers and then claim grace are like the Pharisees because they're just being hypocritical. High view people do not do this. They do not love sin for one thing and they do not use grace as a license for sins. They're not antinomian living without law. They seek to obey the scriptures with all their might. They work hard at being hearers and being Doers. Why? Because they are justified already. And their response to their justification is obedience, partaking in their own sanctification with God, exploring and exercising the means of God, His Word, communion, prayer, those beautiful things He's given us. They work hard, they work diligently to obey. High view people also defend the scriptures. When the word of God comes under attack at the hands of outsiders or what we will see in an increasing way, insiders, high view people stand firm. They hold the line. They don't shrink back or capitulate even when they are insulted, threatened, and persecuted. In the midst of it all, they remain true to scripture and they remain as candid as the scriptures are Candid, I'm reminded of 1 Peter 3.15. We heard it earlier. 
Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for a reason for the hope that is in you. Defense here is an amazing word. It's an interesting word with interesting meaning. It is apologia or apologia in Greek. Paints a picture of a person or city or nation that has its defenses in place and is ready to stand against an enemy attack. From apologia comes the term apologetics, which is the discipline of defending the Christian faith through the systematic use of information doctrine. Some of the earliest church apologists were men like Justin Martyr and Tertullian and Origen and Augustine. Apologists today would be men like, and I think Hank Hanegraaff is an apologist in a sense, Lee Strobel is, Ken Ham, Ravi Zacharias, and if you've ever heard of James White, he's pretty good at it. What Peter is saying here is fairly simple. Always be prepared to defend the truth when others question what you believe and why you believe it. That's what he's saying. You've got to have some knowledge and some prep work in place before you can defend the truth, don't you? You've got to believe some things about the truth. You've got to know the truth to be able to have a good defense of it. That uh, passage there in 1 Peter 3 also says... Verse goes on to say that when we give our defense, we should do it in gentleness and with respect. And that is highly important for us to do that. And I'll tell you what, that is one of the hardest things to do. If you really love the truth and you hear what people say about it or how they're trying to reorganize it and reinterpret it and all that, just tell me that doesn't get you fired up. High view people get fired up at those kinds of things. And a lot of times they say dumb things in response to it and then realize, ooh, let me apologize to you. I'm not changing my position on that. The truth is the truth, but I shouldn't have responded that way to you. I should have been more gentle. I should have been more respectful. But it's not an easy thing. It's never easy for those who love the word to be gentle and respectful towards those who hate and despise the word. But we must always understand that their eyes are scaled, that they don't understand the truth, that they're ignorant of it, that they can't understand it. We should plead with God that they would come to understand it, that he would send his Holy Spirit to open their hearts and minds. If we claim to hold a high view of Scripture, if we claim to hold a high view of Scripture, then the things that I mentioned must be true of us. We must believe that the Scriptures are inspired, objective, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient. We must also compare the teachings of others and our own thoughts to Scripture, and we must obey and defend Scripture in love, in gentleness, with respect. That is what it means to be a high view person. And guess what? According to the passage we're studying, one who is noble in the eyes of God. Amen to that. One who is noble in the eyes of God. Now, some of the Jews in the Berean synagogue or in the city of Berea were similar to what I've described. They had a high view in a sense because they were willing to listen, receive, and then compare and so they were much like what we've described here in a sense. And their attitude, their openness, and their determination to prove Paul right or wrong via the scriptures was the very vehicle and means God used to bring some of them to faith. Look at verse 12. This is astonishing. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as Greek men or men. Verse 12 reminds me of, of Lee Strobel's story. Have you ever heard his testimony? 
Before becoming a Christian and a, and a leader in apologetics, he was a rank atheist. And he was about as opposed to God as, as, as you could be. And he was married to a believer and became determined to prove his wife's faith was bogus. He began to study the Bible like an, just like a maniac, just reading it and reading it and studying it and reading it and pouring over it. And, and he was looking for discrepancies and inconsistencies and errors. And what he found was the living Christ. He got saved. He was building his case against his wife and, and against God essentially, right? Because if you persecute a Christian, you're persecuting Jesus. And while he was doing this, he became, he became absolutely convinced without a shadow of the doubt that the scriptures were true. He got saved. And that's kind of similar to what happened to the Berean Jews. They may have set out to prove Paul wrong by studying the scriptures, but the reverse happened. Paul was proven right, and many got saved. And not only did some of the Berean Jews get saved, but... So did some of the high-standing women and men in that community. Now look at what happened next. Look at 13. Pretty cool, huh? You think the idea to, to jump into the scriptures to, to disprove of, of someone's faith is that person's idea? Or do you think that's the grace of God at work? Right? Just think about that for a moment. You think these Berean Jews are like, well, we're going to get in there and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna prove whether he's right or wrong. I, I have my doubts, Quincy. What do you think? Well, how? I think they're wrong too. I just can't imagine. Do you think that was their conjuring? Or do you think that was the active, amazing, powerful grace of God drawing them to himself? That's how I see it. Where are we at? 13? But when the Jews, oh, this is insanity. You just can't get a moment's rest, can you? Not if you're doing it right. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned, oh, learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, <laughs> agitating and stirring up the crowds. Oh, boy. Word of the Berean revival made its way 60 miles east back to Thessalonica. And when those ignoble Jews, those stone-hearted troublemakers heard the news, oh, we better go down there and take care of this. We better deal with this. They traveled to Berea to cause trouble by stirring up and agitating the crowds. Somehow they had appointed themselves as the police force, if you will, and we better go down there and do something about this. So they made their way down there. 14 and 15, then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left, they departed. The brothers in Berea didn't take any chances. They got Paul out of there very quickly. One of the commentators I really enjoy wrote that uh, the brothers had been forewarned about the Thessalonian Jews on their way and sent Paul off before they arrived. So that could be true. That passage seems to imply that in a sense. So there may have been some forewarning. Hey, those same guys that jacked you up in Thessalonica, they're coming. We need to get you out of here before they arrive. That could be the way that it played out. And this is interesting. The text also says that Silas and Timothy remained in Berea. Paul didn't take them this time. 
And that also leads me to believe that the Thessalonican Jews had not arrived yet because they were able to stash these two somewhere. And why did, why did Paul leave them behind? Well, these people were new Christians. This was a new church. Were probably left behind to, to help edify and build up the church. Paul more than likely instructed his two companions to remain there with the new believers to help ground them in the gospel. If we glance over, and you don't have to turn there, but if we glance at 2 Corinthians 1.19, we see that both Silas and Timothy could preach and teach the word. Oftentimes when they went into a city, Paul would preach, and so would Timothy, and so would Silas. And so all three of these men could preach very well. And so Paul probably left them there, continue to preach to these people. Figure out a way to do it where you don't get in trouble with those Thessalonican Jews. And keep building up this church. It's a new church. They need us. They need the word. They need Jesus. They need the gospel. Verse 15 seems to imply possibly that Paul and his escorts did a bit of traveling before making it as far as as far south as Athens. They may have stopped off in other towns and villages. Text doesn't say it, but it seems to imply it with the way that it's written. That's a strong possibility there. And when they arrived in Athens, Paul's escorts turned to go back to Berea. They just basically brought him down there. They were like his chauffeurs, if you will. They turned to go back to Berea, and Paul asked them to send Silas and Timothy back to him, ASAP. And then they departed. And interestingly, Silas and Timothy did not reconnect with Paul until after he wrapped up his ministry in Athens and went to Corinth. And we see that in Acts 18.5. We'll get there. Silas and Timothy may have arrived in Athens where Paul was, but then discovered by some, and we'll learn about this, who had given themselves to the Lord. A church was planted there as well during Paul's ministry. Some of them might have told Timothy and Silas, he's not here, he went on to Corinth. And so when they arrived ASAP, Paul was gone. He was on the move, going into new cities and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, planting churches, making disciples is what he was doing. Closing, I'd like to wrap up our time with some questions to you. Do you have a high view of Scripture? Do you believe that the Scriptures are inspired, objective, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient? Do you compare the teachings of others and your own thoughts to the Scripture because the Scriptures are your highest standard? Do you obey the scripture? Are you a doer of the word? Do you defend the scriptures when they come under attack? And do you hold the line when you defend the scripture and then you're attacked? Remember what Jesus said? The world will hate and despise you because it first hated and despised me. I'm always confused when Christians complain about the persecution they're receiving when the Lord himself promised it would happen. I can't figure out why these things are happening to me. I don't understand it, and I don't like it. I want it to change. Well, let me tell you how you can change. Just compromise the truth, and then you won't have any trouble. None. You won't be noble much use to God 
My, my sincere hope and prayer is that we all, me included, are and hold a high view of Scripture or that we are being trained in this very moment to have a high view of Scripture. That, that we would all, literally, we ought to be like the little baby John the Baptist in his mama's womb when we open up the Bible and look at it. Our heart should leap, something should leap within us. We should be that excited about it. Like, I, I get to, to I, first of all, I, I can't even comprehend how many people have died to provide me with this book. This book is built on the blood of many martyrs. That I can actually have this Bible, not to mention that it's a MacArthur Study Bible, that's an extra bonus. That I can, that I can read this Bible whenever I want to read it. That I can commune with the Lord Jesus Christ anytime I desire just by picking up this book and just reading. I can pick any passage in there and there's the Lord. What, what an incredible, right, Levon? What an incredible gift that God has given to his church. And how often do we take that for granted? I might add that high view people, just they love and they cherish the word and they get into the word, they read the word, they study the word, they meditate on the word, they pray in the word. Let's not take this book for granted. Not so much as that so many countless thousands had to die to bring it to us, but that without it we can't know God. We can look at Half Dome and get a sense that there's a God we can look at the Grand Canyon and say, something had to happen here. We can get a sense of God by looking at creation, general revelation, if you will. But this is special revelation. This is God's words to us. This should be your highest prize, and it should be your highest priority to get into this word, to love God's word, to cherish God's word. And to defend it. Some think that God's big enough to defend himself. He doesn't need me to do that. You don't understand that he uses his church to defend himself. Not that he can't intercede, you know, just intercede and do things that he wants to do. He does. But he uses his church to uphold his truth. Why do you think so many people died trying to get this book to us? Because they were persecuted by this world. They were even persecuted by many in the church who didn't have a high view. I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with me. God, never let this fire and passion and desire for your word ever be quenched. I will become useless to you, God, if that ever happens. Don't ever let it happen. Give me a strong sense of, of responsibility in it myself. And without God, I can't do anything. But you know what? As a saved, justified person, I've got responsibility. I need to get into the Word. I need to motivate myself at times. I need to be disciplined. We live in a postmodern, post-evangelical, post-Christian, post-times of thousand, everything else relativistic nation that needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot, under any circumstances, afford to compromise the truth. A sin-friendly and sin-accommodating gospel is 
powerless to save. What Matthew Vines has written has no power to redeem and save because it points to a false gospel that to be in sexual immorality or, and we could take this in any sense, any kind of sin, that somehow that's okay, that we're not to turn from those things. We cannot afford to compromise the truth, period. Christ has given the church a warning that couldn't be more relevant or timely for the church today. As church leaders around us compromise and crumble on issues like homosexuality, Revelation 2, 19 to 23 stands as a clear warning to us all. Jesus said, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. In Thyatira, there was a leading woman, if you will, who not only condoned sexual immorality, but promoted and practiced it. Jesus warned the church that he was about to judge her and those who followed her ways. This same warning goes out to every leader and believer who acts like Jezebel, to those who practice, promote, or condone sexual immorality, whether it be fornication, adultery, homosexuality, or any form of it, Christ will not tolerate these sins or the promotion of these sins or any sin amongst his people, nor, nor and keep this in mind, nor will he tolerate them amongst outsiders for very much longer. Why? Because he's coming back. He is coming and he is going to bring judgment. We must not shrink back and cave to the culture. We must hold the line. We must keep and cultivate a high view of Scripture so that we can be effective in ministry. Listen carefully. This may not be what our culture wants, but it is what our culture needs from us. Do you hear me? What our culture needs is for us to not cave in and give in and welcome Sin in any form. Welcome sinners. Preach the gospel. But not to say it's okay to remain in sin. Our culture does not need for us to capitulate and to shrink back and to believe the Matthew Vines of the world who want to redefine the truth and the church. Our culture needs us to hold the line. Because when we hold the line, we uphold the gospel. And only the true biblical gospel can save. have a time of communion. This is an opportunity for you to
reflect upon what you've heard and what you've learned, to ask yourself these critical questions. Am I a high view person? Do I believe the word? Do I defend it? Do I love it? Do I cherish it? Do I defend it graciously and in a loving way to others? Do my best to do that. You can ask yourself these questions. You also need to, I think, before you probably even get there, or maybe during the midst of that, that you would ask God to reveal any sin that you have. Maybe your, your sin today is that you don't have a high view. And God is calling you out of your complacency, out of your apathy for his word, and saying to you, right to your heart, get in line with my truth now. And maybe that's what you need to confess to him this morning. I don't know what sin you're wrestling with. I know what sins I'm wrestling with. I'm going to be back there and telling God about them. Repent of your sin. Ask him, search my heart, God. Reveal sin to me. Repent of sin. And then equally important, remember the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ, you're a justified person. You're not earning anything with him. And we talked about some effort today and putting forth some effort and studying and reading and defending and all these things. That's wonderful stuff to do. But you don't do that so you can get yourself saved. You do it because you are saved. If you are. Remember what he did on the cross. Remember what he did on the cross. Remember how he lived his life in perfection to God's law to earn a righteousness for you that you can never achieve on your own. Remember how he died on that cross and bled and died there to pay for your sin debt. Remember how he was put in that tomb and resurrected under the power of God that you would have power to live for him. Be refreshed by God's grace. And lastly, during communion, in your heart, plead this with God. Commit yourself to obeying his word. Obey the word. Obey what you have heard today. Be a Berean and go compare what your pastor has said today. And at some point, cast down what I've said that doesn't align with Scripture. I didn't see it that way, but hey, I'm a man. But compare it to Scripture and then make the conscious effort to obey the Scripture. It does no good to listen, to hear, and not to obey. If we do that, we are deceived. Obey the scripture. Father, thank you for this time of communion, Lord, where we can confess sin, where we can remember the finished work of Jesus Christ, where we can be refreshed by your grace, where we can commit ourselves. Your mercies are new. Your grace is fresh for us. It's transformative that right now in this very moment we can recommit ourselves to obeying you the very word of God, living it out, bringing you glory, bringing hope to others. Thank you for this time of communion, Lord. We need to be reminded that this time is for believers only, if that there is one person in here who is visiting, two or three or 50, would be everyone basically. If they are not believers in Jesus Christ, that they need to abstain from this so as not to bring more judgment on themselves. This is the time for the saints, Lord. We thank you for this time, that we can exercise this time each week, that we can spend it with you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.